Most of you know that I've spent a lot of my time and my energy figuring out what it means to live into my values, what it means for us as an organization, as a faith community, to live into our values, which has led me recently to thinking a lot about courage and fear and vulnerability and strength. And I've found that I am not the only one thinking about these things. There are many of those, especially those whom I tend to listen to, that are digging in deeply to understand our world. To walk with courage is, apparently, to not be without fear, but to walk with fear in one hand and courage in the other, as Dr. Susan David said the other day. So I went looking for examples, because I learn by seeing. And I recently learned about Henrietta Bowers Duterte. Many of us don't know her name, but Henrietta was the nation's first female undertaker. She was born in 1817 in Philadelphia and grew up in a family that was active in the abolitionist movement, and a part of that was centered in their church. In 1852, Henrietta married Francis, who was an undertaker, and it was from him that she learned the trade. Francis was a member of a local Philadelphia organization known as the Moral Reform Retreat, and they advocated for abolition as well as women's equality. Sadly, Francis died suddenly in 1858. And it was after her husband's tragic death that Henrietta assumed leadership of his funeral home. Now remember, this was a time when it was incredibly rare for women, much less black women, to own their own businesses. But Henrietta was really successful. And it was with the income that she made that she was able to be generous with her own community, supporting her church and the community to help other black people thrive. But her ph philanthropy did not stop there. Henrietta used her undertaking business to become an active member of the Underground Railroad. You see, Philadelphia was a central station because it was right on the Mason-Dixon line, just north of it. And so it was where lots of people stopped. And Henrietta would use funeral processions to disguise people and sneak them out of the city. How genius is that? Or, and this is more terrifying to me, I'm not sure I'd do this, she would transport them in coffins. Yeah, not fine. It was risky business, even in a city like Philadelphia with its large population of free black people and Quakers. However, she never let any of this deter her. Not only was she a prominent abolitionist and a philanthropist, but she continued to operate a compassionate and accommodating funeral home that served the black community of Philadelphia for the rest of her life. In fact, she served as the undertaker of a young black man just two days before her own death on December 23, 1903. I've found myself wondering about what was it in Henrietta that gave her what she needed to do such important but risky things? Where did her courage come from? How was it that she was able to find that courage to subvert the unjust power of her day? I think we could probably say it was her church, her faith, and her community that had a lot to do with it. 
And we don't have to look far to find other examples of faith and community giving us here in 2022 what we need to be courageous as we face the unjust things in our day. In this story that we hear in Luke, this story of abundant fish, we have an opportunity to see the courage of Jesus and the people in the Galilee area when we dig beyond just this so familiar story. You see, in early first century, Galilee was ruled by what was called a client king. So this means that while the city was owned by Romans, they were under the rule of Herod, and so they were a little, afforded a little bit more autonomy as long as they paid their taxes. So the client king was a son of Herod known as Herod Antipas, and Herod Antipas used the culture of fishing and farming that was so plentiful in the Galilee to make himself very rich and to pay the Romans. And as a result, fishing and farming families were poor and lived at a subsistence lifestyle. There was no free trade like we know now so that someone could move their way upward on the economic scale. Instead, you were taxed to the point of poverty. They were required to pay fees for licenses, taxes on their catches and crops, and tolls along the routes they used to transport their goods so they could sell them. Farmers and fishermen had no control over these things, and it became more and more difficult to live. So the Roman Empire was what was called an extractive economic model, where production and distribution favored the powerful, not the ones who worked. So by the time Jesus is standing at the shore of the Sea of Galilee, commercialization of fishing has happened, and the sea has been overfished. This is why there were no fish to be had the night before, or for many nights that those who fish would go out. When Jesus asks Peter to put out his boat so he can teach the people who have gathered, I imagine Peter was hopeful that perhaps a little fee would be paid. Instead, his life is changed when Jesus asks him to do the impossible. Go over there, Peter, and put your nets out on the side of your boat. And Peter's like, you know, We've been out all night, and we didn't really catch anything, but all right, if you say it, I'll go. And he does. And there are so many fish, others need to come and help so that the nets don't rip. To suddenly have this many fish would have deep ramifications for the whole community, especially because of the system, farmers and fishermen had found covert ways to keep some of their catch so that they could live. So the miracle of the fish wasn't so much that Jesus told them to go out again and they find more fish where there had been none, but that there is a healing that occurs for the whole community and the powerful are subverted. The ripples of this day in a fishing boat would affect this community for months to come. People will be fed, and power and hope are given where there was none. Then Jesus says to Peter, perhaps the most oft-quoted mission statement ever, follow me and you will be fishers of people. This image of full nets gets translated into full nets of people, which 
can be problematic for faith communities because it disregards the actual actions the members have to put in um, beyond just pulling people in or hooking them in and hooking them and then reeling them in as the modern images go which with the exception of Pentecost really doesn't happen on such a big scale sure whole households can be converted at a time in the New Testament but it's never done passively. It's done when faith is shown and shared, when the good news of the kingdom of God is told. Don't forget, Jesus has committed to proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God just one chapter before. And here in Luke 5, he begins to do that work, not only by teaching, but by providing an abundance of fish which is for sure a marker of the kingdom of God. Because extravagant food is a feature of the world created when God's rule is fully established. But Peter feels completely unworthy of this amazing gift. It's interesting to note that Peter at this point already knows Jesus, has some sort of relationship. This isn't their first encounter. In chapter 4, we read that Jesus has lunch at Peter's house, where he heals Peter's mother. And Peter would know the stories of God's people, would recognize the sign for what it was. And then Peter sees in Jesus what he knows about others who were prophets and more. And Peter falls to his knees, fully unworthy of what has just come to him. And Jesus meets that unworthiness with grace and power and promise. Follow me, he says, and you will know God's abundance. Follow me, and you too will have the power to change lives. So Peter does leaves his nets right there and follows Jesus, along with James and John. So what does this story mean for us today? None of us are fishermen by trade. What does it mean for we who have long imagined ourselves as tasked with hauling nets full of people into our churches, but have been challenged by the Holy Spirit to rethink what discipleship means? and to consider how we witness to God's abundance and love in our world? What does it mean for us to respond with a sense of unworthiness, but to be met with grace, power, and promise? What does it mean to have the courage to step into the life-changing work of the gospel as we explore what it means to live into our values, to welcome all, be community, and serve our neighbor? I think the placement of this story in the Gospel of Luke gives us a clue. Because it's chapter 5 before we hear the calling of the first disciples. In Mark, it's the first chapter. Mark just skips over a whole bunch of stuff and just gets started. But for those who first hear this Gospel, those wondering what it means to be followers of Jesus in the midst of not knowing where they belong in their world, They've spent the first four chapters learning about the God that has invited them into a new way of living. They have seen God's abundance and grace in the stories of Elizabeth and Zechariah, 
Mary and Joseph, shepherds and angels, John and the crowds, Peter and his mother. They have seen Jesus stand firm in the face of anger, something they would have known well. And here in this moment, with this story, they would begin to sense God's own call on their lives. They would begin to sense God's amazing love and guidance and grace. Then and only then do they hear the call to discipleship. Friends, there are times when we don't quite know where we belong in the overall landscape of our world. There are times when we stand in the face of anger or hatred or dismissiveness. There are times when we feel unworthy, unable to do this thing that we've been invited into to preach good news to the poor, release to the captives, recover sight for the blind, and let the oppressed go free. These are the times that, once again, Jesus meets us with grace and power and promise, a promise of love and strength and wisdom. As much as I admire Henrietta for all that she accomplished in her life, I know there must have been times when she felt a sense of unworthiness that the same fear about the future that we can have gripped her. And she knew grief, deep grief, because not only did her husband die young, but so did her children. And yet, knowing her God, knowing the stories of the faithful, trusting in the promises of Jesus who called her, she steps out in faith to meet the challenges of her day. And we can follow in her footsteps in the steps of Peter, as we make our way to meet the challenges of our day. We can trust in our God who sent us Jesus' love incarnate to show us the way, despite feelings of unworthiness or fear or uncertainty, and I guess I can add, or really great pride in ourselves. We can trust in our God who showed us the way as he made his way to the cross, showing up and proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom by teaching and healing, dying and rising. We have challenges ahead of us, dear friends. There is no denying that fact. But let us go forth with courage to welcome all, be community, and serve our neighbor in the love and peace of our God. Amen.